Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week, I want to talk with you about the usual suspects. No, not the movie. At this point, I think we all know who Kaiser Sosa is. No, I'm referring to when a patient sits in front of you and describes their symptoms. Your proficiency in this circumstance is a direct result of how well you know the usual suspects. Still confused? Well, let's take some time to talk about these usual suspects. I don't want to oversimplify this, but I think that most times, this is a situation where we get bogged down in complexity. If we can simplify things while maintaining enough complexity to remain accurate, then we have a tool that can be very valuable. I've always referred to this as the usual suspects. Not an homage to the movie, but to highlight the fact that subluxations produce particular consequences. If you know how, for example, an L5 presents symptomatically, then you can quickly recognize when L5 is your most likely suspect. I don't want to diminish the value of a physical exam, but I think a lot of doctors ignore the history because they don't know how to interpret what they're hearing. The history itself is not something we talk about often, even though it often contains the clue that makes the difference between success and failure, especially with our more complicated or unusual cases. When talking about our usual suspects, can you differentiate between an L5 and a sacrum or an ilium? How about a C7 and a T1? Those are determinations that we have to make every single day, and they can be tricky. I don't want to mislead you about that. Just because they are the usual suspects doesn't mean that the job is easy. In fact, if I make a mistake, it'll probably be with one of these usual suspects. So let's start at the bottom with L5 and the pelvis. Leg pain from L5 or any of the lumbars will usually follow a dermatomal pattern. An EX will usually cause whole leg pain or numbness, or it will stay to the outside of the thigh and the calf. This is not an absolute method for distinguishing between the two, only a tendency. So let's talk about a difference in presentation and compensation. First, let's think about the lumbars. A lumbar vertebra is only capable of about five degrees of rotation. So let's say L5 misaligns with the full five degrees. The body now has to compensate for that. So how many vertebra levels are required to do that? Well, one level could rotate maximally, and we have compensated in just one level. Sometimes that happens, and it's easy to spot because of the 10 degree difference in rotation between the subluxated L5 and the compensated L4. Or, the body might choose to compensate with two degrees at L4, and two degrees at L3, and one degree at L2. That's gonna be way more subtle, and a lot harder to find. So now, in the case of the pelvis, how much rotation is a pelvis capable of? Well, we don't usually measure pelvic rotation in degrees, but usually in millimeters. But in a case of extreme rotation, we might get 15 millimeters as our subscript. Okay, let's just say that that's about 25 degrees of rotation. It should be somewhere in that ballpark. How many lumbar vertebra are required to compensate for that? If each lumbar has five degrees, then we need all five lumbars maximally rotated to compensate. Remember that lumbar rotation includes the coupled motion lateral bending. So this is how you get a lumbar curve that's often medically described as a scoliosis. But I prefer to call it a compensatory curve. And I usually explain to the patient the difference between an idiopathic scoliosis and a compensatory curve in the lumbar spine. I also explain that we can get rid of compensatory curves 
but we cannot get rid of an idiopathic scoliosis. I say this because I once got rid of a compensatory curve to then have the patient tell everyone, including their primary care doctor, that I cured their scoliosis. I decided then and there that this is something that needs to be explained on the front end. Okay, so the moral of the story, in simplified mode, is that if you see a lot of positional distortion in the lumbars, suspect the pelvis. If you see very little distortion in the lumbars, suspect a lumbar. It's not quite this simple, but it's a good concept to begin with, and it's important to understand the mechanism of how this would happen. Just to show you where there is complication, the knees are great rotators, and therefore great compensators. If a pelvis has a large degree of rotation, the knees may rotate, producing knee pain, especially on standing and typically on the inside, but then this reduces the compensatory distortion of the lumbars and might cause you to incorrectly determine that the patient has a lumbar problem when in fact they have a pelvis problem compensated for at the knees and minimally with the lumbars. If you think about the lumbar curve created by the coupled motions of rotation and lateral bending, then you can see that antalgic distortions in that plane are usually caused by pelvis problems, specifically the EX-IN component of the pelvis misalignment. When the L5 disc is involved in either a posterior fifth lumbar or a rotated sacrum, the antalgic posture is oriented in the flexion extension plane. In other words, fifth lumbars produce compensation by rotating around the x-axis, while pelvis rotations compensate with rotation around the y and z axes. In this way, you can read the compensation to gain some insight about the hidden problem. Let's move up and turn our attention to the C7-T1 area. This is another difficult area to distinguish. The reason for that is because a subluxated C7 will still move more than a fully functioning T1. This is entirely because of the stabilizing force of the T1 rib. C7 tends to get adjusted a lot more often than T1 because a C7 subluxation will still decrease the motion of C7. It's much easier to pick up the decreased movement of C7 because of how much it moves normally, while the T1 subluxation only provides a slight and subtle change in the joint movement. The end result is that it's quite common to adjust C7 when T1 is the real culprit. Most traumatic head injuries, including whiplash, create upper thoracic subluxations and not cervical ones. Do not neglect to carefully examine the upper thoracics in these types of cases. Especially if you see a loss of cervical curve, look closely for rotation of an upper thoracic. I always tell patients that T1 and T2 and their ribs serve as the anchor for the muscles in their neck that control head movement. So even though they are thoracics and they have ribs, they function more like they're part of your neck. And when they are dysfunctional, they result in a loss of head motion, like Frankenstein neck. I always say it exactly like that, and the patient always knows exactly what I mean. In these cases, I will adjust the thoracic seated and then have the patient look right and left. They will immediately detect the increased motion and it will shift their paradigm to realize that their neck problem wasn't really their neck at all, but their upper back. That is a very good lesson for them to learn and a good experience for them to have, as experience is always the best teacher. All right, let's go a little higher and look at C2 and C1. This can be a very tricky area because of the way the C1 connects to the odontoid, creating an intimate connection that often causes these two bones to act as one. I don't mean this rudely, but perhaps the most rookie mistake is to simply look for the one that's most misaligned. That's not a reliable method, especially when you consider that compensations tend to misalign more than subluxations. In other words, it isn't the degree of misalignment that's the ultimate sign of subluxation. This is why palpation 
must be integrated with X-Ray or else the X-Ray can easily mislead you. This is true in many places, but especially in the upper cervical region. It's easy to see atlas misalignment, but axis misalignment is more covert. Consequently, we're far more likely to adjust an atlas than an axis. But is that how it should be? The uniqueness of C2 is its tendency to go more inferior when it goes posterior. If you struggle to adjust C2, it's probably because you aren't lifting it enough, I to S, before you thrust P to A. This is why the knee chest table is a viable alternative for the C2, and I still do it this way from time to time. This method allows for more I to S, and sometimes this is extremely necessary. Don't neglect this particular adjustment on the knee chest table. It's a very valuable move in the circumstance that you need more I to S lift. So how do we distinguish between these two closely connected vertebra? Both subluxations will result in decreased movement of the atlas, asymmetrical movement of the atlas. Yet the atlas adjustment cannot fix all of these problems because some of them are actually C2 problems and not C1 problems. The atlas is best assessed by evaluating lateral glide, but the axis is best evaluated with flexion and extension. We have to assess both vertebra properly before we can make a determination of which is the cause. This area is particularly difficult, so I don't want to give you any shortcuts or platitudes because they won't work. This area will do the most to keep you honest because you must follow the process completely and correctly to make a proper assessment, and any shortcuts will inevitably lead to error. Neurologically, atlas tends to affect eyes and ears, and axis tends to affect nose and mouth. But this is not absolute either, so it can be used as a guide, but never as a shortcut to diagnosis. In fact, this whole concept of the usual suspects is meant to be a guide to give us confidence when we are right and to alert us when we are wrong but never as a shortcut to diagnosis. It's merely another assessment tool. Having covered these usual suspects, we certainly should not neglect the unusual suspects. For example, a T2 can look a lot like a T1, and a C6 can look a lot like a C7, and a C3 can look a lot like a C2. What about a T10? How often do you adjust a T10? And are there any telltale signs of a definitive T10 problem? What about the upper lumbar's propensity to cause hip pain, which is often confused for a pelvis or a sacral problem? The more we know about how these vertebrae behave, the less likely we are to jump to easy and incorrect conclusions. Hip pain must be an ilium. Not so fast there if you understand that upper lumbar's affect the hip as well. Now we can't just jump to a conclusion. We must examine the patient and determine the actual cause of their problem. I know we all know this on an intellectual level. But how often do you find yourself looking for a shortcut and jumping to a conclusion? Often, at least sometimes, unjustified, especially when you're tired at the end of the day. Mental fatigue is real, especially when you're new in practice. You develop endurance over time, but we all have a breaking point, and that's when we start jumping to conclusions and trying to take shortcuts. It takes tremendous awareness, self-awareness, and discipline to fight against this urge and continue the process to certainty. Let's talk a little more about C3 here for just a moment. If you've never heard Dr. Rindle give his lecture on paralysis, you absolutely should. It will either change or solidify your chiropractic paradigm of what's possible with properly applied chiropractic. I once heard Dr. Rindle give this lecture three times in the same year. After the third time, because I'm a very slow learner at times, I said to myself, I should be adjusting more mid-cervicals. If you've never heard the lecture, Dr. Rindle covers the resolution of paralysis in numerous patients, and the vast majority 
involve mid-cervical adjustments. And here I was thinking, that's odd. I almost never adjust a mid-cervical. Um, maybe I should be adjusting more mid-cervicals. But that means I'm going to have to do a much better job of finding them in the first place. So I did. I started looking more intently for mid-cervicals, and I started to find them. Then I started to adjust them, and I started to see some miraculous results. How long have I been missing these problems? The answer is, too long. As one part of this, I began to become more in tune with C3. Many unresolved, or you might call them unstable, upper cervical problems are because of an ignored C3 problem. C3 is small compared to C2. It tends to pull C2 back, and then the C2 spinous will cover the C3 and make it difficult to access. So the first obstacle is getting a good and proper contact on C3. C3 is also adjusted more flatly, meaning it has less I to S lift than you would use for a C2. In other words, C3 is a very different adjustment from C2, and you have to develop the skill to do this adjustment, or else you'll probably just default to C2 or some other vertebra that you already know how to correct. I'm not trying to insult anyone's adjusting ability, but I'm trying to push you to always grow and always improve. These skills do not come naturally, so we only have the skills that we've worked to develop. If you've never worked on it, then you probably don't have it. How often as a student did you ever set up or attempt a C4? Did you know then how it was different from a C3 or a C5? Do you still not know? The more time we spend working with individual segments, the better we get to know those segments. The better we get to know those segments, the easier it becomes to identify them when they are misbehaving. I once did an all-night ride-along with a police officer in Fort Myers, Florida. That in itself is a long story. As we were driving through town in the middle of the night, he saw something that got his attention. I, of course, saw nothing. He said, quick, grab that book down by your feet. He told me a name and wanted me to look it up. I flipped to that page and showed it to him. That's what I thought, he said. The lights and siren came on, he flipped a U-turn, and we were off. This book that I had in my hands was a book that he had made himself of the usual suspects in his area. We used that book several more times that night. Each person in that book had a propensity towards certain crimes, and those crimes meant certain behaviors, usually in certain locations. By knowing their tendencies, we were able to find several of them in the act of committing a crime. It was this experience that first got me to think in terms of the usual suspects in my profession. I decided that if I knew what the dysfunctional behavior would look like, it would help me to identify the source of that dysfunction, even before the symptoms became too severe. Well, I hope you found this beneficial. I know I went through many of those very quickly, so I hope you had time to grasp anything that you were missing that might benefit you. I gave you some important details, but I really want to push the concept of the usual suspects. Look for patterns of behavior and remember them when you find them. This is merely one tiny aspect of the knowledge base we use prior to an adjustment. I don't want to give the impression I'm minimizing any other aspect of the exam. Speaking of which, in just a couple weeks, we'll be having the meeting of the minds and we'll be talking about chiropractic instrumentation. If you're eligible to attend, I would highly recommend that you do. Prices go up October 1st at the end of this next week, so register today. Thank you for joining me today. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.